Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Welcome again to Bible Center. It's great having you here. I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor. Welcome uh, to those of you who typically come to the 11 o'clock service and for those who typically come to the nine o'clock service, but maybe the alarm clock didn't quite go off. We're glad to have you as well. Maybe you're like me, about every hour last night, I was waking up every hour, every couple hours, just wondering, is it true that your cell phones change times on their own? And yes, for like the 10th year in a row, they still change times on their own. Let me ask you to go ahead and dive in with me. Open your Bible to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, and verse 6 is where we'll begin in a moment. And before we dive in, just a couple of things for review. Last week and the week before, we started our series called Relationship Goals, going verse by verse through this particular book. And we heard two weeks ago that there are several ways to interpret this particular book, and some interpret it just spiritual, some interpret it only literal, but we saw that throughout church history and even Jesus himself interpreted this book in kind of a hybrid sort of way. It specifically applies to the physical marriage relationship, the dating relationship, then the marriage relationship, and of course it has lessons to teach us about God's love for us. I love the way the illustrative view reads. Solomon's Song of Songs is about a real physical relationship that illustrates a spiritual reality. And then last Sunday, we learned a lot about dating, about how important it is to build those intimate, emotional ties, even spiritual ties before we get married, but even after we get married, how important it is for us to date our spouse. I would encourage you to go back and listen to either of those messages. I trust it'll be a help to you. Couple of resources. One, of course, is God's Word. The book of Song of Solomon is where the power is. It's much more powerful, infinitely more powerful than my sermons, than my words. So I would encourage you to read that book over and over again uh, this month. Another resource is our website and our app. We have a number of free videos. We have book recommendations, conference recommendations, gift ideas for all sorts of relationships. And so you want to check that out. You can do that now on the app or after the service, and you can also do it on the website. As Michelle mentioned a little bit ago, this is a PG-13 sermon probably much more so than the last two. Next week, we're going to actually deal with conflict, about how we work with conflict with not only our spouse, but also our friends and family members. So next week will be a lot more for everybody. But today is especially PG-13, and so we want to make sure that nobody uh, is uncomfortable besides me, because I will certainly be uncomfortable. We already warned our nursery workers that about nine, 10 months from now, they should expect an influx in our nursery population after this particular series. And then a couple of our staff members this past week thought it would be funny to write down some names of songs uh, for the Song of Solomon series. It was a couple of our school teachers uh, who will remain nameless, uh, but they said, you know, for a series like this, it would be appropriate perhaps to sing a song like, He Touched Me. Um, Softly and Tenderly, Reckless Love, Draw Me Nearer. Do you know there's actually a song called Beautiful Scandalous Night? It is. It's a song and we are not singing it during this series. Uh, So hopefully you've learned a lot and we're going to jump in together uh, here in just a moment. If you have your notes, I want to give you the main point at the beginning of the sermon. The main point is this, married couples can enjoy God more by enjoying sex more. Married couples can enjoy God more 
by enjoying sex more. Why do I want you to believe that? Why is it so important that we all believe that? Well, as we've said before, marriages are under attack like never before. I can't recall a time in my ministry where I have seen so many marriages just being attacked by the onslaught of Satan. And so we want to help you. We want to help ourselves while we help you. Uh, One of my close friends this past week made, a, I think, an astute observation. He said that, you know, in a world that is so sex-crazy, it seems that married couples are doing it less and less. And I think that really is right hits the nail on the head. You think about how Facebook for some ladies and how work or pornography for some men has replaced what used to be an exciting union, if not night after night, at least much more frequently uh, than it's experienced today. But the truth is all of us can grow in our married sex lives And those of you who aspire to marriage and believe God is leading you in that way, uh, I would ask that we would approach the Word of God humbly. We're going to do our best to check our inner middle schooler at the door, although it's okay to uh, giggle at times, I guess. I will uh, make it as professional as I can be. In the next few minutes, we're going to look at nine ways to enjoy better sex. Nine ways to enjoy better sex, all from God's Word. Number one. Get married in the sight of God, the government, and other people. Get married in the sight of God, the government, and other people. Notice verse 6 of chapter 3. This is her speaking. She says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? She is describing Solomon's entourage. He's bringing his wedding party with him. He's coming from Jerusalem to Lebanon to pick up his bride, and he's going to bring her back to Jerusalem for this grandiose royal wedding. This particular parade is is huge. It kind of reminds me of a parade at Walt Disney World. If you've been to Disney World, you've seen their parades. It reminds me of something like that. In verse 7, she says, look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. These 60 warriors were the groomsmen. They were his bodyguards, probably his close friends. And so we don't know how many bridesmaids she had, but if it was like most weddings, there's probably 60 bridesmaids. This is amazing. Verse 9, King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it out of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior laid with love. Even though Solomon was rugged, even though Solomon was a tough dude, he took care He he used love when he decked out the inside of this particular carriage because for Solomon, it was carrying his most prized possession, his girl. And then in verse 11, she says, daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look. Just picture her at the window seeing this parade arrive at her house. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look. Look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown. The crown which his mother crowned him on or for the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now you see the friends make a comment. If you'll flip over a page or two to chapter 5 and verse 1, you're going to see how friends were involved. We see how God is involved in the wedding, how government 
is involved in the wedding. There was a crown, but we even see that friends were involved in this wedding. Chapter five and verse one. The friends say, eat and drink. Fill, drink your fill of love. So without going into too much detail, we see that weddings are important spiritually, civilly, and socially. There's a movement today that sometimes insinuates that it's okay for a man and a woman to just be married in the sight of God. Hey, Adam and Eve, they say, were married and there was no government, there was no contract, so we're going to be married in the sight of God, but not actually go through the official, uh, the official hoops government-wise. Well, the problem with, the challenge with that is that government wasn't around when Adam and Eve were here. Um, but within five chapters, Genesis chapter six, government was established. And so ever since that moment, since government's been established, we're expected to follow the practices of government as long as they don't contradict with God's revealed word. And there's nowhere in the Bible that says you've got to be married in a church. There's nowhere in the Bible that says a pastor has to marry you. It might be the justice of the peace. It might be uh, somebody on a, might be the captain of a ship. But what's important is when you say I do, if he says I do and she says I do, God says I do. And so that marriage union is bonded both spiritually, civilly, and socially. One of the questions I get sometimes is how old do I need to be to get married? How old should our children be before they get married? And I have daughters, and so the answer to that is always 50. That's how old my daughters need to be before they get married. But really, the, the, the truth answer to that is it depends on the person. It's case-by-case case basis. It just depends on how, how the Lord is leading that individual and the strength of that individual to withstand temptation. 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says, But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I remember I was 19 when I proposed to my wife. I was 20 when we got married. I remember going to my grandpa and saying, Grandpa, I can't wait. I got to get married. And his question was so wise and so spiritual. He was like, well, can you pay for it? That was his only question. I think that was a very, very good question. He's now with Jesus. But let me encourage you. If you're here today and you believe you found the one God has for you and you're just waiting around but you're not sure for what, we have 10 pastors at Bible Center. We would love to take that journey with you and walk with you in marriage. The second way to enjoy better sex is number two, see sex as a gift from God. See sex as a gift from God. Chapter four describes the big night. Now, ladies, chapter three described the wedding ceremony. And so many of you, most ladies, think about that particular night from the time they're born. But chapter four describes the wedding night, right? Chapter three describes the wedding. Chapter four describes the wedding night. This is what dudes have been thinking about since they were born, right? Or maybe at least since the third grade. Song of Songs, chapter four and verse 10 says, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice? Now, if you're taking notes, you want to get this. The word for love uh, is the Hebrew word dodim. It, it refers to an inner love that has outward expressions. 
There's other Hebrew words that just refer to inner sacrificial love, kind of like agape love. But this particular word refers to inner love with outward expression. Sometimes it's translated caress. It's not an objective kind of love that just sees the person as to satisfy their own desires, but it's, hey, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And so what I'm doing with you physically shows what I'm thinking spiritually or emotionally. Verse 11, notice what, what he says to his bride. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Now, this is not a kind of kiss you give your grandma, all right? This is, this is yeah, this is the kind of kiss that sets fire to wet leaves. She, he says, the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So he is reminding her and reminding himself that sex is a gift from God. Chapter 5 and verse 1, he says it again. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. <clears throat> I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Now, I know we're going through a lot of verses, but you really want to write this next one down. It's Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19. This is one of those definitive verses that shows sex is a gift from God. It says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. When we think about how God created men and women, it's important for us to remember that the Genesis story is, is crucial to the gospel. And it's even crucial to how we view sex. You see, if we believe that Satan created it, then no wonder we're going to think it's a bad thing. But if we believe that God created it, we'll see it as a gift as long as it's confined within marriage. Now, whenever God made Adam, he leaned down and he grabbed dust of the ground and he formed Adam. Nowhere does the Bible say that God turned his back and then Satan added his touch, right? Satan did not put the penis on the man. And God didn't turn back around and go, what is that, young man? No, sir. No, sir. What is that? It's not what happened. God made it. When God made the woman, God made the woman just as he wanted her to be. In Genesis 2, before sin entered the world, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So he knocked him out, pulled out a rib, and shaped the woman. As he shaped her, he shaped her differently, giving her larger breasts, rounder hips, and a vagina. He filled the woman with a different hormone, estrogen, that's more predominant, whereas the man, more predominant with testosterone. And in Genesis 2, God gave them the gift of sex. Now, why would God need to remind us of that? Because there are men and women who've been taught since their youth that sex is bad, and if that's you and you've brought that into the marriage relationship, we want to help you. I would love for you to take God's word this morning and go, this is not a bad thing. No matter what I've been taught, this is a gift. But if there's something from your past that's troubling or hard to work through, maybe decisions that you've made in the past that make sex seem bad, even in your marriage, seek out a counselor. We have men and women on our staff, men shepherds, women shepherds. We'd love to connect with you and help you see 
that this is a good gift for husband and wife. Number three, love your spouse's soul, not just their body. Love your spouse's soul, not just their body. As chapter four begins, they're in the honeymoon suite. Notice what he says to her. She's standing there probably in her dress. He's probably still in his tux. The door's closed, and in verse one of chapter four, he says, how beautiful are you, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. If you've been here the last two weeks, you know not to use these compliments word for word. I promise you it will not work well for you. But in his day, this was value. These compliments were not visual, but they were valuable. A flock of goats would have been worth a lot of money. So it's like he's telling your, your wife, honey, your hair looks like a million bucks. But the wedding is finally over. Solomon isn't trying to trick her into taking her clothes off. He's not reading cue cards. He's not trying to say magic words. But he loves her for her. He truly loves her soul. Notice verse 9. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes and with one jewel of your necklace. He refuses to get off that track. He is saying, I'm not want to have sex. I don't want to have sex with a body. I want to have sex with you. Now, this is important, men and women. Let me encourage you to approach your marriage bed with that in mind. The person you married is a living soul, right? When they were little, they had fears. They had dreams. They still have fears, and they still have dreams. They are going to live somewhere forever, and, and I don't know when it was in our marriage, but at some point when one of our mentors shared that with us, it was a game changer. Don't just see your spouse as a body. See them as a soul and love that soul with all your heart. Number four, view your spouse as God's perfect gift to you. View your spouse as God's perfect gift to you. Notice verse seven. He's still talking to her. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. If you underline in your Bible, you might underline the word altogether. You are completely perfect. You're perfect in every way. Now, here's my question. Was his wife truly perfect in every way? Yes or no? No, there's no person perfect in every way. She had already said in chapter one, verses five and six, she'd already made comment that she knew there were some areas that weren't attractive. For instance, she had to work out in the fields and so her hands would have been torn like the men of that day. She says in chapter one that her skin was, was not only tanned, but it was almost just, it was almost burned. And, and, and that particular day, fair skin was a prize commodity. Whereas in our day, of course, tan is a prized commodity. But she says, I'm not attractive like the world says I should be attractive. But he didn't point those things out. To, to him, she was perfect. I love that line from, from Oscar Hammerstein in Cinderella. He says, do you love me because I'm beautiful? Or am I beautiful because you love me? 
When Sarah and I first got married 18 and a half years ago, I didn't completely know her. I'd been married, I dated her four years or three years, and we were engaged one year, but I still didn't know her. There's no way you're truly going to know somebody until you spend the rest of your life with them. And even then, you still learn something every day. But I didn't realize how much fun she likes to have. Now, in public, Sarah's very quiet. She's not in the service today. She's at an event in Columbus today. And so how convenient it was that she skipped out on this particular sermon. I've been teasing her about it all weekend. Uh, but whenever we got married, I didn't realize how much fun she likes to have. And so in public, she can be quiet and reserved. Large crowds make her nervous. She just wants to kind of blend in. But privately, when she's with a group of friends or family members, she has a blast. Well, it really bugged me our first few years of marriage. I would be like, won't you, won't you chill out? Like, come on, life is serious. Life is hard. I'm trying to get work done. And she's always like goofing around and having fun. And finally, one of our counselors told us, and he realized what of a fuddy-duddy I am, like, buddy, she is God's gift to you. You're an idiot. Hey, just enjoy her. Let her be her and enjoy her. And I was reminded yesterday of that. We were cleaning out one of the dressers to give uh, to some family members. And as we were cleaning out a dresser, I found the dresser where she keeps all of her party supplies. I don't know. I always wondered where this stuff comes from. But it was in the spare bedroom, all these party supplies. And there was thing one and thing two wigs. If you're familiar with thing one and thing two, you know, cat in the hat. I, I was, why do we have a bright blue fluorescent wig in this drawer and a bright blue fluorescent wig in this drawer. She goes, well, honey, you just never know when you might need to be thing one and thing two. I looked right at her. I was like, baby, that's what I'm going to remember you by the rest of forever. You never know when you might need to be thing one and thing two. The very thing that annoys you about your spouse is still God's gift to you through your spouse. And so as you look at your spouse and you see how imperfect they are and how, how wrong they get it sometimes, what if you, you saw your spouse like Jesus sees you? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, that he sees us through the righteousness of God. He sees us wearing white robes. God the Father right now sees us just as righteous as Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. So think about what the perfect woman would be for you, men. What's the perfect woman like? What does she look like? What does she act like? What does she smell like? What's her personality like? Women, think about the perfect man, right? What's he look like? What are his biceps like? How much time does he spend with you? Now, take that man, take that woman, and see your spouse more perfect than that. That is when theology meets marriage and strengthens it from the inside out. Number five, focus on pleasing your spouse more than yourself. Focus on pleasing your spouse more than yourself. Notice that his focus isn't on himself. In the first seven verses, I counted earlier 12 times he refers to her, and only one time he refers to himself. Let's count them. Verse one. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind the veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like the flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has a twin, not one of them is alone. Now, this is a different day, right? <laughs> He's saying, baby, you got all your teeth. You are looking fine. <laughs> 
man. So you dentists in the room, this is your verse. Verse three, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. He's talking about her smile. Verse four, your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. She carries herself like a queen. Verse five, your breasts are like two fawns, the twin fawns of a gazelle that, bray, that graze, browse among the lilies. Now, I won't say too much about that here, but it does need to be commented. It's a metaphor. You're smart. But think about this for a minute. If you want to catch two fawns running through the field, how do you catch them? And don't say with a rifle. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to kill Bambi. All right? How do you catch them? Well, you've got to woo them. You've got to circle them. You've got to entice them. Sex is to be tender and gentle and pleasing to the other. There's a certain vigor that comes as your love grows, but it always remains tender. That's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 6, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of incense. What is Solomon saying here? Well, scholars believe he's suggesting that he wants to go as long as it takes. He wants to be with her as long as it takes. He has to be nowhere else. He's in no hurry. He is not rushed. He's not trying to get this done like it's an athletic event. I don't know if his stamina actually allowed him to go as long as he said he wanted to go, but he said he wanted to be with her. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Husbands, I just want to speak to you from my heart for a moment, from one fellow on the, to another on the journey. We're all on this journey. None of us have arrived. Some of the oldest husbands I've met in Jesus still say they learn something almost every day. But let me encourage you as husbands to ask your wife what pleases her. It might not be every day. I would actually suggest it not be every day. But if you do this once a month or once every other month, you're doing pretty good. Now, I always find I have to be prayed up when I ask my wife this question. What am I doing that pleases you? And on the inverse, what am I doing that doesn't please you? She'll probably tell you, guys. And so don't take it personally. Don't take it offense. I know we think we're, we're the best thing ever, God's gift to her. Uh, but we always have room to grow. And so ask her, what is it I can do to love you more? Fellas, you know this. Our wives probably need more quality time, more acts of service, and more physical touch without expectation than we regularly give. And so all of us can grow in at least those three areas, quality time, acts of service, and physical touch without wanting something in return. So ask her about that, and that's probably what she'll say or something like it. Wives, let me speak to you humbly for a moment. Your husband probably needs sex far more than you do. Now, I know there's that random woman, that unicorn out there, but for the most part, your husband probably needs sex more than you do. And so what I'm finding in marriage counseling is that if a couple goes a long period of time, and by a long period of time, we're talking a few days, more than a week, there's certain temptations that creep in for that husband that maybe you've never thought about. 
Now, I know your husband can be a jerk sometimes because I can be a jerk to my wife. But I know you love him. And you wouldn't, if you knew the devil was out front with a bow and arrow, you wouldn't kick him out the front door and lock the door behind him. You'd want to protect him. He's not perfect, but you'd want to protect him. Let me encourage you with this. Satan is after your husband. And he will use everything possible to get his mind. God will be with him. God will give him grace. But in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, your gift of sex to your husband actually helps him fight the battle much more successfully. So ask your husband, is that true? Well, maybe not every day, but how often do you really need it? And how often would it help you live the Christian life? Sarah and I have come to learn there's two types of sex. There's gourmet sex and there's fast food sex. Sometimes you just got to grab fast food to make it through the week and that's okay. That was supposed to be funny, but it wasn't funny. <laughs> All right. We're almost done. Verse... Oh, sweet mercy. Number six, uh, go slow from head to toe. Number six, go slow from head to toe. This is a type of Arabic love poetry. I didn't know it till this week, but actually there's thousands of these documents where one lover will write about his or her other lover and he'll describe them or she'll describe them from head to toe. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Now notice this, in verses one through eight, Solomon starts at her eyes and he works south. And then in verse nine, he surprises her and he goes back north again. In verse nine, he starts right back at her eyes. He says, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now Solomon, he's a man. He wanted to go all away. 15 seconds flat, man. He's a dude. But he's taking his time, and he's going slow from head to toe. Man, let me encourage you with this. This is more for us. I realize that not every day can be like this. Kids come. Jobs come. And man, life just gets hard. I get that. But let me encourage you. When God gives you time with your wife, don't rush. Treasure her. Love her in a way that makes her feel loved. Men are like microwaves. Women are like crockpots. Take your time. <laughs> Number seven, work hard to remove, remove distractions. Work hard to remove distractions. Notice verse eight. He says, now this is really gets practical. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinar, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. What is he saying? This one took me some time this week. What is he saying in verse 8? Well, most scholars believe that verse 8 was his way of trying to get her to focus on where she was. This is her wedding night. She was probably very, very young. This is Solomon's, probably his first wife. This is his days of innocence. He may have been 16. She, she may have been 14. Who, who knows? This was a different day. And so she is dreaming. She's, he catches her thinking about missing her mom, missing her homeland of Lebanon, missing all that she was familiar with. And you can just picture, I love this image, you can just picture him lovingly holding her cheek and, and pulling her focus back and she, he says, come with me. In the Hebrew, it's just one word repeated 
repeated, said twice. He, it's just with me, with me. He's not being forceful. He's not being demanding. He's, hey, babe, with, with me right here. I've got you. I, we're together with, with me. I'm encouraged by verse 8. The Bible is honest. If there were distractions in Solomon's wedding night sex, there will certainly be distractions in ours. And so that should help you be encouraged to know what's just what we do with the distractions that matter. Here's a couple of pointers, and these are free. Man, make sure you lock the door if you got kids. Just trust me, lock the door. Your kids will be fine. They'll survive. Put your phone on silent. You say, well, what if somebody from work calls? Really? Really? Just put it on silent. Turn off Facebook or, or ladies, put your phone on silent or, or stop posting or stop surfing, stop texting. Here lately, one of the most common comments I hear is, well, she doesn't give me any attention. All she wants to do is play on Facebook. And it certainly works both ways. Well, what are you doing to win her attention? Get her attention. But certainly it takes two. Put a movie on for the kids. When our kids were little, you put a movie on. They're glued to the screen. Give them that tablet, whatever it is. Friends, if you have a sick child that has to sleep with you often, hey, the Bible never says your kids can never sleep with you, but I would try to encourage them towards their own bed. But if they have to sleep in your bed during a period of sickness, there's other creative things to do, right? There's other rooms in the house. There's other creative ways. Make the distractions. Make sure the distractions isn't the relationship itself. Even if you lock all the doors, sometimes ways that you've sinned against your spouse in the past have a way of hindering your intimacy in the present. If that's the case, let me encourage you to see a counselor. Let me encourage you to find another brother or sister in Jesus. Try to work through those things. Sometimes asking forgiveness is the start, but it takes time to rebuild trust. But I'm looking at a room full of people as I know more and more about your stories. You know it's true. God's grace can win out. Number eight, we're almost done. Men, let your wife control the final green light. Let your wife control the final green light. Here's explaining a metaphor with a metaphor. Verse 16. This is the first time she talks in the whole chapter. She says this. Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow in my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Let your wife control the final green light. What I mean by that is this. This Hebrew idea of awake, this is her way of saying, now you can bring it. Now you can bring it. So up until this point, for, for 15 verses, he has loved her. He has wooed her. He has, he's cared for her. But now in verse 16, he has waited. And now in verse 16, she says, now it's time. Now, and it's very, very clear here, come into me. Husbands, let me plead with you. Wait for the invitation. Let your wife control the pace. You say, well, I'm the man. I'm supposed to be in charge. Listen, right here in God's word, he is giving us a pattern to say, give your wife the control. Value your wife as a woman, not as an inanimate object. Check your fantasies at the door, guys. Your wife probably isn't going to slide across the hood of your sports car covered in chocolate. She's just not going to do it. She's just not going to do it. Check your fantasies at the door. While all things are holy in marriage, don't make your wife 
one of God's daughters do anything she's not comfortable doing. Respect her, love her. Wives, let me plead with you, remember the control that you have. You have amazing control. Don't be afraid to tell him what you like him to do. If you don't need it, ask him if he does. If Remember, your husband wants you to desire him just like you want him to desire you. Lastly, number nine, see sex as a beautiful picture of the gospel story. See sex as a beautiful picture of the gospel story. We say verses 12 through 15 for the end. Let me encourage you to read these with me or follow along. Verse 12, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. What's he saying here? Well, in one sense, we could say he's, he says, you, you smell like Bath and Body Works, right? You smell good. But this is all poetry. There's more than that. Certainly, there's metaphors to, to her anatomy. But theologians believe that verses 12 through 15 is Solomon's way of connecting his love to God's love for his people that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This afternoon, you can read Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis 2 reads very similar to Song of Songs chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, about the Garden of Eden. And so Solomon is saying, honey, when I am with you, it is like the Garden of Eden. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. As we said a couple of months ago in our gospel series, the gospel began with God creates, God created in a garden. And then sin breaks. Adam and Eve sinned in a garden. And then Jesus came to save, and he was buried in a garden. The Gospel of John says he was in a garden tomb. Whenever Mary came to visit him, she saw the resurrected Jesus and at first thought he was the gardener. So created in a garden, sinned in a garden, saved in a garden. All throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses garden language to talk about how we're transformed. We grow like a garden. Yes, we come to Jesus by faith, but as we read our Bibles, as we connect with the church, we grow like a garden. But one day in Revelation 19 through 22, we're going to be restored to a new heavens and new earth. And the language of Revelation is all about a garden. There's a marriage in the garden, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as you think about your marriage relationship, your sex life with your spouse, see it as God's gift to you and see it as a small picture of the gospel. God gave that to you. It's a treasure. It's a gift. He created it. Hey, sin broke it. Sin's broken all of our sex lives. All of it. We all struggle, every one of us. Let's just get honest. Jesus saved us. Any decisions we've made in the past, he washes those sins away, past, present, and future, but his spirit is transforming us. You say, there's no way I can live in these nine principles with my spouse. The spirit can help you. Don't start with all nine, but ask him to help you one at a time. 
But one day there's coming a day when you, with that living soul that you call your husband and wife, will live in eternity with Jesus forever. God will restore all things. I love this quote. We think about marriage as a picture of the gospel. Gary Thomas says, sex is about physical touch, to be sure, but it's, also about, it's, but it's about far more than physical touch. It's about what's going on inside of us. Developing a fulfilling sex life means I concern myself more with bringing generosity and service to bed than with bringing washboard abs. It means I see my wife as a holy temple of God, not just as a tantalizing human body. It even means that sex becomes a form of physical prayer, a picture of heavenly intimacy that rivals the Shekinah glory of old. Married couples, I want you to enjoy sex more so you can enjoy God more. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.